Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we're enjoying a balmy 65-degree summer. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM. You can all check out WPRR's 24-7 streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean, Yellow, and Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Greetings. Later in the show, we have Buddhists on the props list and on the shit list. We'll also be talking about Israel and Palestine, and we have our very first entry in the Gospel of Doubt, this one sent in by the Lord himself. But first, take a look in our mailbag here, which is not actually a bag. It's actually just an email folder. It's going to be an antiquated metaphor. It really is. It, I, I was just realizing, as I was saying, mailbag. Anyway, this is a letter that came to us from Eric. Eric writes, I have a question that I think you might be able to answer since two of you are both out atheists and teachers. And actually, it's three of us are out which atheists and teachers. Which one of us is not out or a teacher? I am a high school science teacher, he says, and an atheist. I am out, outside the classroom, but within the classroom, I have been very careful to at least attempt to keep my lack of religion out of my talk. When a student asks what I believe, this happens quite often as I teach both Big Bang cosmology and evolution. Bravo for that, Eric. Thank you. I am very careful, Eric says, to explain that I won't answer the question because I'm a public school teacher and as such a representative of the state and that the separation of church and state means that I can't espouse a religion while I'm teaching, and that if they would like to come by after school and discuss it, then I will happily discuss my beliefs with them, but not during class. While I am happy with this, to some extent, I would like to say openly that I am an atheist. Uh, After school, he says he did have a student come by to talk about her religion. She was a Muslim, and she's fed up with her religion's treatment of women. She, He says, I highly encouraged her to become an activist against such treatment, but she said that she was looking for a neutral view. And since I was an atheist, I never said this in class, but she claims that everyone knows. He says he's very much like to be able to be out as a teacher, but he has reservations both in the attitudes of the students and with respect to the church-state separation issue. He also adds as a P.S., While I would like to take the high ground in class, I know that there are teachers on campus that are openly and very vocally Christian. I actually shared a classroom with a biology teacher that had a picture of Jesus at the front of the room and religious posters all over the classroom. You know, I think one of the big differences between him and us, clearly, first of all, though, is that we're not public school teachers. We teach at a college level, and so Mm -hmm. therefore uh, it's a little bit different in regards to the whole separation issue. Yes. But the spirit of it, I think, is there's an overlap in that I, I, uh, we don't want to appear as if we are have an axe to grind and announcing that we're with a big A on our shirt. Hello, class. Right, I'm right. Professor Atheist. Right. Well, no, I, and I don't teach any classes that 
specifically deal with religion, though in my mythology class um, I do What's make the it difference? known. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, that, and that's the point I made. I, I use the, the the dueling creation stories in Genesis chapter one and two. Um, as an example of of creation myths, um, and I do address that. Now, I haven't had any students ask me outright, "Are are you an atheist? What do you believe?" That sort of thing. It, because I'm not a public school teacher, I would I would be honest. But when I was student teaching in public school, then I I kept my mouth shut not only around students but also around the other teachers, especially in an area like like Grand Rapids. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is there's – you got to separate what is an ethical issue from um, just a practical issue yeah, right. about how your Political school is tactical. structured. Yeah, uh, how is the administration and the parents and everything else, how are they going to respond to you? And so those concerns, that's going to depend on his particular situation. Mm-hmm. And from an ethical viewpoint as far as you know, what are our duties as teachers – I kind of see overall the role of a school is is to leave metaphysics out of it. And yeah. I don't see any value in atheism per se. What I see value in is critical thinking. Yeah. And I yes. feel that it's that, that emphasis on critical thinking that's resulted in a naturalistic worldview. But you don't need to make reference to that end result when discussing the science. And it, be, it could become an argument from authority if you put you, if, if it's about your beliefs, then it's about, well, because often students who genuinely like you want to come up, what do you think about this? You know, and I always, you know, whether it's they like me or hate me, I always tell them what, what I, my personal opinion is totally irrelevant. That's right. Because that's an argument from authority. If you believe or disbelieve just because you hate me. Which is uh, even more effective so. on high school students, I think, than, than it would be on college students. Yeah. I mean, high school students are always that respectful of authority, but... Um, I, I think he's in a good position in that he teaches science so that his naturalistic perspective can come through um, without saying, by the way, there is no God. There's no way you can avoid it entirely because I still read my oh, yeah, evaluations and, and half right. the evaluations say he's unbiased, he's objective, just talks about the evidence. But then you always get like, you know, I always get a few that say he's biased, he's clearly an atheist, whereas I, I've never said that. Right. So clearly, you know, there's always going to be some people that say if you uh, provide even like evidence or some sort of objective, rational viewpoint that pisses me off, that means you're biased because that's the only way that they can get through the day is to say it must be something about you. Right. But I think the job of any good teacher is to teach students how to think, not what to think. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's the position you have to take here. And I, th- I think it's especially important, too, that students should be challenged by content, challenged to be better critical thinkers, um, but they shouldn't ever be made to feel unwelcome because they think right. that their teacher's viewpoint somehow disagrees with them or that they're being targeted for some sort of reason. Especially uh, in high school where you have you have to take these classes. Right. In college, I can avoid taking yeah. your class because I don't... That means, it, yeah. As long as you I not. do a whole, like during the first week, I do a whole buyer beware thing. This is yeah, a right. liberal arts class. This is about psychology and religion and right. all controversial oh, yeah. issues. I mean, I start so we're my mythology teach the evidence. class with so Genesis. If, if you're uncomfortable with, with talking about religion from the standpoint of evidence and argumentation and, and back and forth, don't please don't take the class. Right, right. When, in a high school situation, with a if a creationist is a- asking a question in the room or, or challenging, I mean that's total fair game to go and and show gently, hopefully, mm-hmm. why that position is wrong. Why, but on the grounds of evidence, not because it's a religious perspective of one of the students in there. Now, I do think this uh, students approaching him 
Yeah. So no longer talking from the podium, students approaching him to ask about his views. That, I think, is a different issue. Mm -hmm. We're no longer talking about a a representative of the subject, of the class, of the school. Um, It's it's him personally. I think there, I think it's perfectly moral to share your perspective with them as long as it's from a consciousness-raising standpoint. Yes. I am an atheist. These are some of the things I believe. These are some of the misconceptions people have about what I believe. Right. From that consciousness-raising standpoint, it's perfectly acceptable to share your viewpoint. I think if it turns into a proselytization, yes. Uh, even if they approached you, if you use that as a license then to try to deconvert them, uh, and they're not asking for that, they're not looking for counter evidence to some of their viewpoints. I, I think that's when it crosses. Yeah, if you the start line. handing out pamphlets or like this other teacher that he talks about, Jesus pictures and so forth in the front of the room. Hey, that's science. He's it's probably of the water and the wine conversion chart. Oh, so maybe that's what it is. H two O. Well, and, and and I guess to me the most frustrating part of this situation is what he talks about in his PS, where he's, I'd like to take the moral high ground, but there all of the other teachers or many of the cr- teachers who are Christians are very open about that fact. Why do I have to be the one who shuts up about it, and the Christians can talk about? Their faith and and I've sat in a number of classrooms where I have too where teachers do this. I mean, I when I was in high school, it was a Christian school, but um, in but if if that is a breach of professional ethics, that rule applies to everyone. And so, just because some are violate violating it unfairly, doesn't mean that we then have license to do the same thing. And in some ways, I think that might be a good initial test for whether or not your actions are moral. Uh, Just say, the way I'm talking to this student right now, if there was a Christian or a Jewish or a Muslim teacher that were saying the same types of things from their perspective, would I find this acceptable in this context? And if you have to answer no by your own standard, then are you being professional? Right. But but Eric, I totally get your frustration. Oh, yeah. We we know – where you're coming from it, with this one. It is one. very difficult, even even at the collegiate level, to to be confident in being able to talk to your colleagues well, about yeah. Dave and I have both worked in high schools. We we know mm. we know what this is like on that level too. And depending on your area, it can be really hostile. Yeah. That being said, I, I found a friend when I was student teaching because his classroom on on the door to his classroom he had a doubt sticker, um, like CFI gives out. And I, I saw it and I did a double take. Oh, the one that looks like the laundry detergent shout. Yeah, exactly. Doubt won't and, fade the truth. And we had this awkward, like, ideological butt sniffing that happened for a few seconds. <laughs> like, so. You ever Almost heard like of... he threw down one half of the ichthus. <laughs> yeah. Um, Did you try the secret handshake? So, I and I think uh, something like that. And, you know, if another teacher has a picture of Jesus on her desk, as a biology teacher, put a picture of Richard Dawkins up. That's fair game. But anyway, um, one more thing in the mailbag that I I wanted to address real quick. We're getting a number of responses to the um, particularly the rock and roll portion of the sex, drugs and rock and roll episode. Um, A lot of people saying, hey, what about this song? Well, if you didn't get it to us beforehand, it didn't get included. And some of you who did get suggestions to us still didn't get included because we didn't have enough time on Facebook. Go to our group and there is a discussion thread called Godless Music. I've listed most of the suggestions we already have. So 
put your suggestions on the Facebook group so that everyone can can see what you're sending in, and uh, we'll create a big catalog that way. We are going to move on now to a, a subject that we really haven't talked about much on the show, Israeli-Palestinian conflicts. It's a big topic. A recent article from NPR, Activists Vow to Revive West Bank Settlement. The article by Lourdes Garcia Navarro focuses on Obama's recent speech in Cairo, Egypt. Which he addressed to the Muslim world as a whole. Well, amongst other things that the Obama administration wants to see happen is that they want Jewish settlements permanently out of the West Bank. Many see that as a precondition before any sort of peace talks can continue, before there's going to be any sort of satisfactory resolution of that conflict, Mm -hmm. Jewish settlers need to get out of the West Bank. And Israel has made some effort to do that, arguably not enough, but even where they have, many Jewish settlers are going in and trying to resettle these areas, even against their own government's permission. The article interviews Yair. Yair is a Jewish settler who's returned back to Homesh, an area that is now illegal for Israeli settlers to occupy, but they've returned anyways. Yair says, For us, it's important to be in Homesh and not to forget this place. We are here as part of a mission because every piece of land in the land of Israel has to remain in our hands. He continues to say, the Palestinians do pass by from time to time, and they think it's uninhabited, meaning Homesh. Mm -hmm. He says, we talk to them, and we tell them that we are back. We say, this land is Jewish. We behave like we are in any Jewish settlement, so they know they are not allowed to come here. And uh, Yair is part of a group called Homesh First. Their aim is to make it impossible for Israeli authorities to prevent settlers from returning back to Homesh quote from somebody else in that group, they can't prevent us from going up and having a continual presence there. I had the circumcision of my son on the ruins of my old house in Homesh. There were hundreds of people. It was a sign from God that if you want something enough, you can achieve it. Wow, and of how course, did his son feel about that? <laughs> getting your, there's something touching about getting your foreskin sawed off on a rubble in, a, yeah. in alien yeah, in somebody else's territory. In front of hundreds of people. Yeah. yeah. yeah that touches my heart. Yeah. Yeah, I mean this this uh, this issue has has always kind of been in the background. Uh, you guys might also remember we kind of touched on this a little bit when during the election with McCain uh, being supported by that Pastor John Hagee guy. Remember when mm, we talked right. about that? Yep. He, well, he's known uh, around uh, these parts primarily for his support of Christian Zionism, mm-hmm. and that is that a lot of his followers have specific agencies and and charities and stuff to funnel money from Christians evangelicals and such in the United States to uh, Israel, uh, Israeli settlers and to work on the political level to promote uh, not compromising with the Palestinians in terms of trading land for peace, you know, or not putting pressure on Israel. They put pressure on American politicians to not put pressure on Israel to give up any land in the settlement. And, and why is that? What is this Christian Zionism yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting thing. Typically in the Middle East, we focus a lot on things like, you know, religious extremism uh, on the Muslim side. But from the Christian perspective, you'd think, well, what is their dog in this fight? Part of it, I mean, granted, we should say part of it's probably because there's a political relationship with Israel being a democracy in the of Middle course. East surrounded. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, high Jewish a- presence. And we can't States. overlook that because that is an important yeah. part of the... 
But I think, but some of these people, a lot of these people, though, it's a religious thing. I was trying to look for like poll data uh, uh, on this sort of thing. Uh, I think s- uh, somewhere I found in 2003, the poll, a Pew survey found that 44% of Americans said that, that, that they have a belief that God gave the land of Israel to the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. So that's not, a, that's not a minority view. And, but the thing that's even more, uh, I think, disturbing is that uh, they asked the question, do you believe that Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy? And of the people who didn't believe that, who said, no, it's not a fulfillment, about a third of them support Israel in the conflict, maybe 18% support Palestinians and in a mix of both or neither. But of the people who said, yes, Israel supports or fulfills biblical prophecy, 57% sided with Israel uh, it's, and only mm-hmm. nine with the Palestinians. So there's a huge effect. You can argue that it's just a political thing. But there's a huge effect of religious beliefs. If you believe, if you're a Christian Zionist, you believe that in order for Jesus to come back again, there's a millenarian flavor here that, that Israel has to be in control of the entire, what they would call Judea and Samaria, including Jerusalem, and which the, the rest Bank. of us call the West Bank. Yeah, so right. f- between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River, which, you know, is not, politically, is not their territory. Right. But they believe that Israel has to control that, and some of them even want to wipe off the Dome of the Rock, the, the Muslim holy yeah. site, from the Temple Mount and mm-hmm. restore the Temple, Solomon's uh, Temple there. And so they believe that in, that in order to have Christ come back again or start the end times, so some of it's kind of dispensationalism right, like, right. That, that they have to take matters into their own hands. And, and this is all based in the book of Revelation that talks about Jesus returning to Zion? Uh, I think Jeremy, a lot it of it really on? isn't from the book of Revelation. I, I think well, a lot of these are really um, – I think a lot of them think it's from the book of Revelation. They cobble though. together they, these yes, things. Yes, they take the book of Revelation but they view it in the light of the book of Daniel. Uh, I think a lot of these are really ad hoc modifications of prophecies that have failed. So you take a prophecy. Yeah, uh, well, much of religion uh, in the way that it evolves, at least when it comes to Judaism and Christianity, uh, I think would fit that explanation. The ad hoc fallacy is where you have your theory, you have your background theory describing something. If it's proven to be wrong, instead of rejecting your theory – You rationalize it. You come up with extra data, new premises or information just to fix the theory so that it's immune to criticism. And you can find examples of ad hoc thinking all over the place in the Bible. I think actually the very concept of the Messiah himself probably comes from that. If you think about it, David, King David had a strong following and one of those Old Testament prophecies or an Old Testament covenant rather – Mm-hmm. that God made with David was that some an heir of David would always sit on the throne of the kingdom of Israel. Didn't and that would be an eternal throne. And so, yes, of course, when the nation is conquered, when their people are thrown into exile, of course, the very next question is, did God fail us? Did right. he break his covenant? Their ad hoc modification was to say, well, no, the kingdom of Israel will exist once again, and there will be one of King David's descendants that's on the throne and this belief of a Messiah starts to come into place. And, and one of the amazing things to me about that is Jesus as the descendant of David because Joseph comes from the line of David. 
even though Joseph has absolutely nothing to do with right. Jesus's. They have to uh, contribute his Y chromosome at all. Or, yeah, you know, to yeah. Fit I mean, the, it's just yeah. it, there's so many well, to fit the mythology of the Messiah. Yeah, you, you have to find a, a descendant. You of can't David. have Mary be the. A lot of well, since the Bible so much about military conflict over a thousand years, it's ample material from all sorts. Every war, basically, that the ancient Israelites ever fought, can be read into this by saying. Uh, but you can take military type conquests and, and read it into a current, project it into current things, and saying just like we fought off the Am- you know Amalekites, that's the way that we should right. fight off the, the Canaanites, and, like and the that's Canaanites and that's exactly what happens um, when you get to these prophecies in the Book of Daniel that talk about the end times. You notice that the temple is intact. It has to be intact because somebody has to go in and the abomination of desolations desecrate the temple. Well, the temple doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, but couldn't the the Dome of the Rock be the abomination desecrating the temple? Well, I guess that might be one way to interpret it. interpreting prophecy. Very good, David. Uh, You just gave a bunch of people ideas. Way to go. (laughs) Great. But one of the other ad hoc uh, interpretations of this is to say, well, uh, if in the prophecy it says the temple is going to exist, that means the Dome of the Rock is going to have to be destroyed, which means there's going to have to be conflict between Muslims and Jews. It's not something we should even hope to avoid. It's something that has to happen. And so I think that's where a lot of this end times dispensationalist stuff comes up, is they're trying to read prophecies that have failed, really. Mm Mm-hmm. And well, they're trying to say, well, then certain certain events must take place. In order to correct that. Yeah, in basically. order to restore yeah. the context in which, these philo- in which these prophecies can actually be fulfilled. Because they, they can't this- possibly be that they're wrong. We just need to correct everything else to make them right. And that's the story of a lot of apocalyptic thing. And the tr- there's a yeah. tradition there that things are so bad right now, but if we perform certain actions, then God will set things right again. And and what's interesting is that there's a tension here. Obviously, there's a tension because if you're Jewish, you'd think, well, wait a minute. Are these Christian Zionists in the United States supporting us because they like Jews in Israel? Right. Or are they supporting us as a vehicle to bring about their end times you know because obviously if you're if you're sophisticated and you're Jewish you're flipping through the revelation saying wait a minute only a proportion of the Jews that convert will be saved in the end times the rest of them will be put to death like everybody else and so there's you know there's a lot of people actually that are I think very cynical that are Jewish right now saying who cares let the American Christians support us send us their money yes they want us to convert but as long as they support our political aims in settling in the West Bank we'll just let them do that yeah let let them think that that's how it's going to play out and the, uh, yeah. They encourage tour groups to come over. You can take Zionist tour groups yeah. where you can turn around and say, oh, here's where all the holy sites are. And here's the three places and where by Jesus the way, died. Let's have the donation to the settlers and things yep. like that. Well, yeah, just to give you an, a concrete example, International Fellowship of Christians and Jews distributed $14 million uh, back in 2001. I don't have data for the latest years, uh, but $14 million raised exclusively from American evangelicals. This is from the article Antichrist Politics from Salon.com, which says, Most of the money went to resettle Jews in Diaspora to Israel and to help care for new arrivals. This group, Fellowship of Christians and Jews, has an office in Chicago staffed by 50 people, and there are 3,500 churches involved in this organization. Now, if you wanted to settle the West Bank and and these other areas, would you turn down fourteen million dollars dropped in your lap mm. by American yeah. evangelicals? 
No, and see, and Israel has that problem because the, since they have this right of return, they have all kinds of immigrants from, you know, let's say even the, you know Russia or Soviet Union right. or wherever that can go there. But they are obviously a small country that you know, and where to where to put them? Well, th- so they kind of say, well, there's pressure to build all these. We need to build more room to house all these people that are coming, you know, because any Jew around the world has a right to return. The problem is though, is that there are there's an encroachment then upon this West Bank territory, uh, and that you have these buildings popping up and. Yes, the pl- the pressure to stop them or or make at least a show of stopping them is always there. Mm-hmm. But um, we United States basically doesn't really do a whole lot about that. Bush for two terms did nothing right. really to sl- other than say now you stop building those things. But really they kept on building them uh, and and uh, and. And that wall that's being put up uh, is not conforming to the borders of the West Bank. The wall right. is basically being built to surround existing Jewish settlements to just to go around them. what's there. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's a it's de-, de facto annexation of territory on the ground. Yeah. And and I don't know if if George Bush was a a Christian Zionist, um, but I I remember listening to quite a number of. Uh, things about members of uh, high-ranking Bush officials who who were now whether or not that's true or not I suppose bears further investigation, but there's a lot of evidence to suggest that um, there was a lot of this mentality in the in the Bush administration. Yeah, a tremendous amount of pressure. If you say, well, and we're probably in the Obama administration too. Any politician that says we should put some pressure on Israel to stop that so that they can be negotiations again is going to be hit like a ton of bricks by yes. lobbies all over the place. Like there, there's an extremely powerful Israeli lobby, but also uh, Christian Zionist lobbies that yeah. would say you are you know neglecting Israel. And they often do so for religious reasons. Yeah, even though there, there's a the Jewish minority in the country is smaller than that of the non-religious from surveys I've seen, um, they're very powerful. They're much more powerful than we are. And then fundamentalist Christians on top of it. And they have powerful allies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and this also came to a head. Uh, we saw not only in the West Bank, but in Gaza, when Israel had to respond to all those rocket t- attacks by going into Gaza. We all, There were some reports coming out of um, the... Israeli defense forces, the army actually receiving the the blessing. A lot of their people are are also religious, are, are rabbis that are high ranking generals. And wow. so there are some reports that came out where they were saying, where basically the soldiers were saying they received a message that this was a religious action that retaliating against the rocket fire, which is you know perfectly acceptable to defend yourself. Mm-hmm. But these, but there were reports that some of the high ranking generals who also functioned as essentially rabbis were saying that God sanctions these actions. Uh, and that and that uh, that led to some atrocities. I don't know if you guys remember before when we talked about kind of like you know s- studies showing that if you sanction an action with religion, if somebody's religious and it, they appear they believe the action is sanctioned by God, they're likely to be more vengeful and violent. Well, there's a perfect example of this right there, and that is if you're a soldier saying, "Well, should I shoot this person?" or you know maybe should I level this house with my tank? If you have a sanction from your commanding officer that says it's your religious duty to do so. You know what qualms are you going to have about saying oh, maybe I shouldn't? You're going to—it's going to be a religious act that you do. Yeah. Now it's no doubt it's always difficult to separate out the political factors from the religious factors. That's something we admit right up front. Right. We're just trying to say yes, religion does play a role, it, it, even if it's not the only contributing factor. It's a strong one. Now many might say that they think the doctrines and the tenets of Judaism go against a lot of these attitudes 
for every religious factor that might promote violence, there's uh, countervening religious factors that for some people that might, uh, that might promote tolerance. Yes, exactly. Some will quote Ezekiel chapter 47, and you shall divide up this land also to the strangers who sojourn amongst you, and they shall be to you like native citizens amid the children of Israel, says God. That's um, a commie. Sounds like a pinko to me. Yeah. Well, I think you can find a, a lot of different Jewish perspectives all across the board, and not all yeah. of them are going to be sympathetic of the actions, some of the repressive actions of the Israeli government. Yeah, even even uh, Israelis themselves are yeah. not all in support. There's a movement called Peace Now, which yep. which uh, advocates Absolutely. stopping right. the settlement building, uh, negotiations, two-state solutions, and everything. Which seems perfectly natural, considering th- what they're living with right now. These, A lot of these people are just saying, knock it off, okay? I want to be able to walk without worrying about uh, right. getting blown up and shot and all that. The, the problem is, is that even if those who want to antagonize this conflict are in the minority, all it really takes is yeah. a minority to Minorities actually drive the agenda. Yep. Right. Even though they don't command, you know, the majority actually is pushed by, by extremists. All you have to do is, lo- it's easier to lob a bomb into and affect the agenda rather right. than to win by a vote. I found a really interesting piece from Moment Magazine. Uh, this is an article they have uh, called Ask the Rabbis. And the question is, how should Jews treat their Arab neighbors? And they talked to an independent Jew, a rabbi from the City Council for Humanistic Judaism. They talked mm. to a, a renewal Jew, a Reconstructionist Jew, a Reform Jew, getting all these different perspectives. And a majority of the perspectives I looked at in this article show some sympathy for the Palestinian position and say that the doctrines and tenets of Judaism go against this. Uh, I want to read to you one of the minority viewpoints here. When you get to the modern Orthodox perspective— mm it starts becoming less tolerant. They, surprise, surprise. Yeah, they pay lip service towards recognition of human rights and equalities, but they seem to be of the perspective that um, Israel has been mostly right in all these conflicts. Mm-hmm. When you get down to uh, the uh, Chabad perspective, I don't know if I said that right. You have to have more phlegm. Yeah, but it's, it's by, a by Rabbi Manus Friedman of the Bias Chana Institute of Jewish Studies in St. Paul, Minnesota. His perspective is the following. He says, I don't believe in Western morality. In other words, don't kill civilians or children. Don't destroy holy sites. Don't fight during holiday seasons. Don't bomb cemeteries. Don't shoot until shoot first because it's immoral. The only way to fight a moral war, he says, is the Jewish way. Destroy their holy sites. Kill men, women, and children, and cattle. Well, yeah, of course. Sounds totally kosher. The first Israeli prime minister who declares that he will follow the Old Testament will finally bring peace to the Middle East. First, the Arabs will stop using children as shields. Second, they'll stop taking hostages, knowing that we will not be intimidated. Third— What, after you kill all of the children and hostages? I mean— jeez. Third, with their holy sites destroyed, they will stop believing God is on their side. Result, Mm -hmm. no civilian casualties, no children in the line of fire, no false sense of righteousness. In fact, no war. Zero tolerance for stone throwing, for rockets, for kidnapping will mean that the state has achieved sovereignty. Living by Torah values will make us a light unto nations who suffer defeat because of a disastrous morality of human invention. The Torah talks about rocket fire an awful lot, I believe. Yeah, and if destroying holy sites decays your faith, how come destroying the temple didn't didn't, didn't, uh, uh, inhibit the Jewish faith? 
it's easy to to condemn that guy because he's a wingnut. Uh, but but in this country, that some of the we have religious beliefs that enable people like that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. To, yeah. That, All it know. takes is a couple of people following this kind of philosophy to go into those settlements with which have been closed off to reestablish their presence there, and right away. You, and we have you start whipping at up this, this point. Conflict. You have you have a half a dozen or a couple of people moving in someplace where they're not supposed to, and you have it, it, the entire nation is thrown into conflict. And, and, you know, and we, I mean, it is as simple as that. And we have a double standard. He mentioned too that, like uh, the prime minister. Think about this: when when um, you guys remember Menachem Begin and Yitzhak Shamir, this was back. They were prime ministers of Israel in the seventies. Back in the forties, I, I don't remember it. Well, before you did, take my word for it. Yeah. There was a couple prime ministers in the seventies that, back when Israel was developing as a nation, they were members of a group called Irgun, which was fighting mm. to yeah. uh, promote the rights of Jewish settlers back when British forces control Palestine. They engage that group engaged in bombings, assassinations, kidnappings. One man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. And so these people yeah. later on were elected leaders of Israel. You can argue about whether those actions back then were right or wrong, but I think I'm I'm pretty safe on saying if those act, same actions were committed by somebody who is let's say a, is was a Muslim, would Americans Call that person a uh, a freedom fighter or a, you know approve of them as a prime minister? No, we would call them a terrorist. Right. But, but because we support Israel, we say, well, yes, they had bombings and assassinations, but it was to promote Israel. Yeah, it was. There's a, there's, it the promotes a double standard. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a double standard that it, that that we promote. Yeah. Well, that brings up an interesting question: How much of American Christians now support of Israel? How much of that is due to you know, general affection for Israel or end times prophecy versus the opposite, maybe hatred or bias against, against Muslims. Muslims. Mm-hmm. I think most of it's based in, in ignorance of the situation, quite frankly. But but you're right. I think more and more um, it's about Muslims bad, therefore the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I, th- I think what people what people can do to sort those things out is to is to when somebody in conversation brings up well God gave the land that those people should be cut short and say we don't make policy on the basis of fairy tales yeah. we make policy on the basis of what's in the United States best interest and if our best interest isn't supporting Israel to defend themselves fine that then the, that's sure. a vote based on any other country based on rational foreign policy but if the support is it seems to be based in any way on things like religious belief I think that's uh, it's inappropriate. Well, you could say, though, uh, there maybe there is an argument for our interests. If Israel is the bastion of democracy in the Middle East, some would try to support it from that perspective. How much of the, sure. how much of the terrorist actions we've had to fight in the Muslim world has been due to our unconditional support of Israel? I, I agree. I agree. Is it in our best interest to support any nation unconditionally? I agree. I think it just goes beyond just our interests into human rights issues in, in general. Yeah. That's what I was trying to get at. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it can't. I can't see an argument of how it's in our interests to perpetuate this conflict and not, and not find a yeah. A peaceful I mean, it, we have this. Think of how much wind that would take out of the sails of of Islamic extremists. Yeah. If we would say we're going to push for a two state solution, we're going to stop settlements, we're going to be even handed. There half the recruitment pitch. Would be would be reduced because someone could say, "Well, Obama doesn't seem to be biased yeah. against." Uh, of course, at this point, the the propaganda machine is so in place. I don't know what the U.S. Sure. could do. Well, to why help them out? Why help them? Yeah, out exactly. You're right. You're right. Why make it easier for them? What 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 drives me crazy about this whole thing, though, is ultimately it boils down to a "I was here first argument. <laughs> 
Well, yeah. I mean, who is? Yeah. Who, well, how can the you original possibly make a historical claim there? Yeah, the original covenant with Abraham included two things. It included descendants promised to Abraham and right. a promised land. Arguably, the Jewish religion began with a divine land contract. Why should one people's historical books have a binding effect? Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, oh, um, the Chippewas books say that uh, that West Michigan is theirs. So right. move out of your house, Jeremy, because uh, see, it's but they land. didn't write books. That's the problem. Oh. See, oral tradition bites you in the ass again. Anybody's religious claim to entitlement over that land is is inadmissible as evidence for their case. I think what we need to do is just recognize the reality of the situation where it is now, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, and try to and try to find some sort of peaceful resolution to it. Right. I don't think it's not it's not practical to think that you're going to get Jews to leave the Holy Land, that you're going to dissolve Israel. Nor are you going to get Palestinians? Nor are you going to get Palestinians? Yeah. You know, the rest of us, I think, just need to help fight for sanity. And encourage policies that will result in peace well, and then attack the people on in our own country yeah, that we can we have an influence on that are making this problem uh, worse. Attack them figuratively. Yes. Yeah. A, attack their policies yes. and their arguments. So back to the Christian Zionists. Much has been made of the role of dispensationalism in all of this. Dispensationalism, again, being the idea that God – gives different programs to different people at different times, um, that he has a role for Israel and Jews, he's going to restore them in the future, and that he has a separate role for Christians, the church, the body of Christ. And uh, dispensationalism goes hand in hand with these premillennial views, which tend to be apocalyptic. Mm -hmm. And people made a big deal of that, but a book by Stephen Spector, Evangelicals and the Relationship to Israel, Stephen Spector makes some pretty good arguments to say, you know, it, it's, it really goes way beyond dispensationalism. Not all of this is end times motivated uh, support for Israel. Spector names a couple of different reasons why many Christian evangelicals support Israel. He says, you know, God's promise in Genesis of blessing for those who bless the Jews, gratitude to Jews for providing the basis for Christianity. He says remorse over the church's historical treatment of Jews, guilt over the Holocaust, and the conviction that God will judge people based on how they treated Jews. All of this plays into some of the affection that evangelicals have for Israel, even if they don't believe in this left-behind end-times crap. Right. I was going to say I think it's too simple to just say it's the – uh, it's the left behind crowd that's doing this. There is uh, strong Christian affection for uh, it's a little condescending in some ways, even reading that description there. Yeah, and he says at the very same time, many evangelicals believe that Israel is our best ally, a democracy yeah. that shares our values in a sea of Arab atrocities. Here's something that's going to throw a wrench into that, and this is coming up, going to be coming up uh, more and more in the next couple of decades, and that is the, the democracy issue of whether Israel is a democracy or a Jewish state. Right now it's compatible because they have the majority, right. but the birth rate for, uh, for Israeli Arabs, that is people who live within the boundaries of Israel who are Arab descent. So not Palestinians. They're, they're, are, yeah, so yeah. These are, their birth rate is much higher than Jews, uh, uh, except the, for the religious Jews we talked about, like the, the fundamentalists living in hill settlements. They have 10 kids, you know, whatever. Right, right. But, but the birth rate is increasing so that uh, if you extrapolate the figures out for the next couple of decades, there's going to be a point where actually 
they're not going to be a minority well, anymore also within Christian Israel. Israelis as well. Right. And so the Jewish proportion of the population right now is the majority. And they have the vote, and they usually win these votes. But if you extrapolate out, that's not going to be true in another couple of decades. Well, now, the, the Israel is going to face a choice here. Is Israel a Jewish state? And I don't know how they're going to maintain that. Or is it a democracy wherein the Palestinian, whereas the Israeli Arabs will get to vote in their own interest and presumably enact policies that are more friendly towards them? You know, and a lot of uh, there are there is some element of the of uh, Israelis that I've heard that would that are worried about that that would that there are some murmurings of maybe mm-hmm. democracy in some ways might have to be sacrificed because otherwise, you know, Israel won't be a Jewish state anymore. Right. Right. What if they're going to have to take the Star of David off the flag? It, and, it's uh, kind of like in know? our country, if, if like Hispanics started getting more and more of a proportion, but they were, you know, much more different. Let's say they weren't Christian or something like that. Right. The, the Protestants in this country would, uh, well, they do feel threatened by Hispanics, but they would be more threatened if somehow that the increasing proportion of the population that would be voting more and more against them, not only, you know, were from a different religious background as well. Right. That's certainly going to shake things so up. So that's kind of almost like a church-state issue. Is Israel a country just like any others that's a democracy, yay democracy, or, or is, it a religious is, state? is it a religious state and should maintain its uniquely Jewish character? And there's a lot of people that say it should, you know, because of the history of the Holocaust. Well, that, yeah, that I was going to say it was established as a reaction to the Holocaust. There was actually people calling for an, an Israeli state in, in the Palestinian settlement long before World War II. In the late 1800s, uh, there's, there were a lot of socialist yeah. movements. There wasn't even sure. a religious oh, character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In fact, some of them were fiercely non religious right. Jews. They they were uh, they they were for things like, you know, the socialist movement settling kibbutzes and things like that were yeah. not a religious thing. Those and settlements were based on socialism yeah. and, and ethnic Judaism, not religious Judaism. Right, right. And right. part of it was the notion that because they live in a minority everywhere in diaspora, uh, that until Jews had a homeland of their own, they would continue to be disenfranchised. Sure. And and, and so it was part of a political movement right. to empower uh empower Jews and give them refuge from political and religious persecution. And similarly, on the opposite side, there's some like Hasidic Jews and ultra-Orthodox who don't agree with the state of Israel. They think that right. that should be created by God, not a political entity. Right, right. And they don't have to serve in the military either, which is another kind of kicker, and that is some of the oh, people yeah. that are pushing the agenda that are the most right-wing, the guys you see dressed in, you know, 100-degree heat with like three-piece wool suits. If you are a religious student in Israel, you are exempted from military service. So in some ways, this I know this might piss some people off to say this, but they push an agenda that they don't have to fight for. It's the other, the secular kids have to serve in the army and go pick up a rifle and go defend settlements that are actually settled by guys who are exempted from being in the service because they're off studying the Torah. Mm. So, you know, if, uh, if you were, how fair is that? I would say. We didn't talk much about the Palestinians and what role they're contributing to this. And I'm sure some people are going to criticize us about that. Right. I have no sympathy for what we hear about going on in a lot of these Palestinian areas as far as, you know, uh, pushing for violence, all the terrorist attacks. And I I think, you know, that is going to cause the government to be reactionary. It is going to cause the government to push back. I think the reason why I criticize Israel more is because here in America, Mm -hmm. the nation I am a citizen of, um, we have provided so much military aid and yes. support and diplomatic support and on the UN Security Council. We've put our veto power behind a lot of the things that the UN has tried to do to right. make a more we, equitable situation. We just so often uncritically support Israel right. that I think 
um, in our position, we need to criticize yes. some. Uh, and so again, our, for our international listeners, understanding where we're coming from, that's, yes. that's why I tend to focus most of my criticism on that side. But yeah, it, it, we're not pro-Palestinian here and, and anti-Israeli. That's, that's not the case. I'm just simply pro-settling the issue on the basis of its rational merits, not pro-supporting something without critical thinking and especially with using religious rationale. Yeah. It's absurd. Mm-hmm. Two-state solution. Say it with me, Obama. Two-state solution. Hopefully we can get that yes, in America, we too. We can have the Jesus land state. They can have their own that's right. territory. I, I think that's what Texas needs to do. Yeah. Texas and Austin. They can give their t- territory back to Mexico. Yeah. Time to move on to our props and shit list. On our props and shit list this week, we have Buddhism. Yeah, Buddhism is, uh, we always tended to vote props on Buddhist type stuff because uh, they're more closer to, you know, they're, they're don't more tend naturalistic. To be yeah. And, yeah. This is a perfect example of the double edged sword of Buddhism, and that is the props Buddhism is that there's been uh, a recent policy for the, um, the Dalai Lama has been encouraging a lot of monks to get education in science and, and training. Yeah. There's a lot to like about this Dalai Lama, and this is certainly one of them. We've talked before about how he encourages things like neuroscience and, and that he's even said that if science contradicts some tenets of Buddhism that you should go with the science and reject yeah. the, you know, stick with rationality and reject the dogma. Article from the New York Times says that the Dalai Lama is supporting, quote, critical investigation. And uh, his confidence in critical investigation means that Quote, if scientific analysis were conclusively to demonstrate certain claims in Buddhism to be false, then we must accept the findings of science and abandon those claims. Yeah, so there's a bunch of monks and nuns and such taking crash courses in things like physics and biology and philosophy. Yep, they have neuroscientists teaching classes on math and logic. Mm-hmm. So it, at least it, it appears from what we can tell that he's trying to make good on that claim. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that um uh and that he believes that they would that they become better Buddhists by knowing something of the outside world, which as you if you know the Dalai Lama's history as a kid, he was very interested in things like uh, mechanics and astronomy and yeah. and science and things like that. So I guess he's trying to extend that to the other ones. So yay Buddhism. But uh-oh. Um, the, my, my shitless nominee this week was that we, again, we tend to give Buddhists, uh, think of them as somehow more humane, but there was a, a story I heard on NPR that actually was worrisome in the sense that uh, in at least one location, the Buddhists appear to be behaving rather shabbily to Muslims, and this is in Myanmar or Burma. There is actually, uh, you should go to directly to the NPR story. Or Yes, the article is Muslim Minority Suffers Under Harsh Myanmar Rule by Michael Sullivan. But there's an ethnic minority in Burma uh, called the Rohingya, uh, and that they are Muslim, because if, if you think of a map, it borders there on Bangladesh there, and right. so they actually are, are kind of along the edge there of the Burma-Bangladesh border, but they are actually treated rather poorly by the uh, Buddhist majority in Burma. They're used as basically as indentured servants, uh, and a lot of the aid after the big hurricane, I don't know if you remember the, 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 that went through there, yeah. they, they got shafted on the aid. A lot of them, the, the starvation rate, actually, the article reports as being uh, malnourishment is at 25% or something wow. like that. But 
some of the people they interviewed that were the Buddhist or the officials in, in Myanmar were shockingly callous to these people and, and basically referred to them as being they're darker skinned uh, they're, they're not Buddhist they're, they should be over in Bangladesh they're not real uh, they're not real uh, uh, Burma citizens and so you don't have hear that very often from Buddhist people well I hope they yeah, come one, back one, in their next life as Muslims one, one part of the article uh, an activist there said that they face arbitrary taxes, forced labor, and construction of Buddhist villages in Muslim areas, confiscation of lands, and religious persecution. <laughs> and it didn't seem that their Buddhist values of causing no harm ever got in the way of that. They yeah. just viewed them as not part of their moral community. Now, right. clearly there's a political element to this probably too. And sure. as with everything else we talk about, how much is the politics versus the religion? But uh, it doesn't appear in this case that having a, a Buddhist worldview is making a lot of those people more humane. Uh, and in many ways, they probably could justify it too by saying, oh, you know, they're, they're uh, different than me or that they've, you know, maybe they've been reincarnated on an inferior level or something like yeah. that. This is, a, this is a radical episode for us. Not only are we taking on Buddhists, but we're also really feeling bad for Muslims in, in two different uh, regions. Uh, and we are going to end this week with our first entry in the Gospel of Doubt. A couple of episodes back, we asked for uh, you, our listeners, to start taking part in the show and share your stories of your deconversion. Why are you non-religious, why do you doubt? What are the arguments and experiences in your life that brought you around to a naturalistic perspective? Uh, this first one, which we had to use first because it came from the Lord himself, a gentleman by the name of Jeff Lord, which is a great name, particularly for an atheist, sent in this essay called Conscience Bound to Leave the Faith. It's like a Christian being named Joe Heathen. It's kind of... That's true. Conscience Bound to Leave the Faith by Jeff Lord. After going to Bible college and teaching the Bible for many years, the problems that I had with Christianity came down to how we can really know that it is true. I had doubts in the back of my mind for years about this simple question, and I relentlessly consulted apologetics books and my Christian leaders for answers. In time, though, the more I looked at the formation of the canon of Scripture and how it all came together, the worse my doubts got. How could we believe in an inerrant text when the early church history that we have of the text was so messy, vague, anonymous, uncertain, and so many years after the originals? When I stopped assuming its truth and began honestly looking at the Bible from the outside, asking the same critical questions that I would ask of a Mormon or a Muslim, problems in the Bible seemed to jump out at me. Major problems and contradictions that affected major doctrine. In time, I had to admit that if I was to be honest, I was conscience-bound to leave the faith. That was a great one, yeah, and I think that could describe the way I, I looked it's, at it. It's wonderful. S something about intellectual integrity, mm -hmm. and as soon as you aspire to that, I think it starts becoming corrosive of religious faith immediately. Well, thanks so much for sending that in. Uh, you can all send in your entries to the Gospel of Doubt Check out our website or Facebook group for the details on Gospel of Doubt entries. That's going to do it for us this week. Until next time, check out our website at www.doubtcast.org. Email us your questions and comments at doubtcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or even Zazzle slash doubtcast. 
If you have the time and inclination, write us a review on iTunes and help spread the word. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in next time for more of your Skeptical Guide to Religion here on Reasonable Doubts. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.